it's a really difficult balance to do with political journalism because you're, you're trying to be accurate and you're trying to be detailed and, and factual and explain everything but you don't want to just bore people to death as well so you need that kind of that light touch and, and like every single paragraph is just dripping with, with wit with venom with humor in these uncertain times people are prepared to pay money for reliable information and it was just fascinating being on this trip just watching and having to kind of glad hand these African leaders and talk about mosquito nets and stuff and you, you could see his whole brain was just wrapped up with this question of how am I going to get out of this pickle at home I, I think you can draw a direct line between social media and those people marching on Capitol Hill Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The View from the Byline My name is Alex Brinton and I'm joined by Peach Vinrich How are things with you? Uh, smashing, thanks, Alex. Yeah, uh, just enjoying a life full of revision. It couldn't be better. <laughs> same as, same as. Uh, without, we are without our esteemed colleague Matt Lee this week, but we will try and get an episode with us all on very soon. Definitely, yeah. So this week we're joined by the chief political correspondent of the Financial Times, Jim Pickard. He has spent seven years in the role, and in doing so, has reported on one of the most volatile and chaotic periods of British political history. From the coalition to Brexit, from Scottish independence to COVID-19, and from David Cameron to Boris Johnson, Jim has seen it all up close and personal. In this episode, we are going to cover all that and the role of Twitter as a journalist, all the gossip from the lobby WhatsApp group and his prediction for the next election. Enjoy. The View from the Byline podcast. Discussing the media landscape. With the people who shape it. Hi Jim, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. It's the end of the week. Um, I'm back in the saddle after Christmas and the new year. I've got plenty to write. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling okay. How are you guys? Yeah, we're good, thank you. We're good. Yeah, very good, thank you. So, Jim, when did you first realise you wanted to be a journalist? So, um, I was relatively slow to realise um, that this was what I wanted to do. So. Um, I did a history degree at Bristol University and I got to the third year and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and I got it into my head that I wanted to do marketing because I sort of thought well business you know pays all right money and marketing seemed like the most interesting bit of the business and I went through the milk round process and it was kind of excruciating like I remember doing these interviews with people like United Biscuits and I remember doing this interview with GlaxoSmithKline and I went up to Birmingham and they asked me, could I name any GlaxoSmithKline products? I couldn't name a single one. And I got rejected by the civil service. I got, I got all these rejections in my third year of university. And then I suddenly sort of, I don't know what the kind of the moment was, but what, once I realized this was the thing I wanted to do, it all kind of slotted in a lot faster. And like when I look back at it, I mean, when I was 10, 11 years old, I used to read newspapers like all the time. And so in, in a way, when you look back at it, it was quite obvious. But I didn't really know many people in journalism or sort of <clears throat> there weren't any kind of obvious inspiration for me. I subsequently found out um, or realized many years later that my cousin, um, who died a few years ago, was an absolutely brilliant journalist. We can, we can talk about her later. And so she, I, I think she's an inspirational person, but weirdly, when I was 21, I wasn't even aware of what she was up to. That's quite a, quite an interesting uh, <laughs> way, way into the industry, that's for sure. And obviously, like you said, yeah, we'll definitely get have to touch on uh, your family uh, past as well. Um, so you work for the Financial Times, Jim. Could you sum it up in one word? Might be quite hard, I know. Quality. <laughs> the problem the problem with saying quality is it could be it could be poor quality isn't it it could be yeah <laughs> we'll take quality uh, at its face value can I, can I can i say excellence you mm. can so you can. i remember this is this is blatant self-serving publicity for my own organization but <laughs> i remember so, so once i realized this is what i want to do i want to be a journalist um i started doing work experience at local papers i must have done work experience at about seven local papers, some better than others. And I applied to do the City University postgrad course, 
which you may or may not know is like a one-year course um, which you do after your first degree. And so I had a nice year where I was doing work experiences and I, I did a bit of sort of um, dog's body work. I worked on FHM magazine um, for a few months and I worked on a trade magazine called What Mobile. I did a bit of traveling and, and then came back and did this, this postgrad course. And I remember the very first um, project that we had to do at this journalism course, they put us into groups and I think it's groups of three and from memory, Naga Manchetti was in my group, who became a friend who, you know, you know is now on BBC uh, TV. And we were asked to look at one newspaper and to go through it, just read it forensically for an hour, and then come up with, what, what did we think of this newspaper? And he said, don't read it like you normally read a newspaper or magazine. Read it as if this is your kind of homework. You know, really think about what they're writing, why they're writing it. You know, read every single bit of this thing. And... I'm almost ashamed saying this because it, again, it sounds, uh, it sounds like I'm picking up myself a bit here, but we concluded that the Financial Times was the James Bond of journalism because we thought it was stylish and cool and measured and kind of witty at times, not always, but adult. And the sort of perception that people have of the FT, which is that it's just this kind of list of share prices and really boring, you know, a company has done its quarterly results and its profits have gone up 3%. Like, I think a lot of people still have an idea of it being all about just business and just about economy and, and GDP data and that kind of thing. It, it, we, we can talk about this at length later, but you know, that was the point age 22 that I realised that the FT was an awful lot more than that. For example, we have the biggest network of foreign correspondents by far of any uh, British media organisation. I mean, we have, I don't have the exact figures, but when I tell you that we have correspondents in South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Egypt, all over the Middle East, India, we have someone in Pakistan, which is where I grew up. We have someone in Thailand. We have a whole bureau in New York, a bureau in Washington. You know, the Times, the Telegraph, the Guardian, they, they really don't have that. They have, mm. some of them have, a, have, have, reasonably decent presence in the obvious places like Brussels or New York or Washington, but they, you know, they don't have what the FTC have, which is someone in Lima and people in Argentina, a couple of people in Brazil. I mean, it's a serious, serious adult news organisation. And I am, I am incredibly proud to work for it. I'm, I'm not going to lie about that. So um, which three journalists do you enjoy reading the most? Um, <clears throat> so I suppose enjoyment, um, enjoyment is a different question to which do I, do I think of the most brilliant? Let's go for that one. Uh, can I do, can I do a mix of, of brilliance oh. and, uh, brilliance and enjoy? So, um, I, I love, I love satire, political satire. So, you know, Marina Hyde is just out of the park every single week she writes and, and like every single paragraph is just dripping with with wit with venom with humor it's yeah, I'm a huge fan. and but she and she's always spot on isn't she like her judgment yeah i mean it's relentlessly cruel and <laughs> and rude in a way that i don't know whether the ft would quite would quite have a marina hyde columnist but what she does is so so good um and she wins the awards as you know for that reason mm -hmm. And I think she's very, very good. I also love Hugo Rifkind, who does the, in the Times, he, he does on a Saturday. The week. Uh, um, yeah, Lyrical Diary. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a, yeah I like that. That's some, yeah, some weeks is really, really funny. <laughs> you could sort of tell with him that he sometimes gets to this point where he can't satirise people because what they're saying and doing is, is beyond satire. And um, <laughs> I think he said that in a tweet um, this morning, mm. actually, about... Um, the I think there was some behind the scenes from the Trump mm. rally. I think he said, he was I don't watching know. his own crowd. Yeah, he was watching his own crowd and said, I don't even know how <laughs> this. I remember him saying to me a few months ago that he he dropped like a, a whole chunk of stuff Trump had actually said into a Trump satire and, and no, no one had even noticed. <laughs> um, oh but Hugo's also, he's also really thoughtful when he does, he's a very good TV reviewer as well and he's very witty, but he also does these, um, he does 
columns where he's really thoughtful about things which are, which are quite deep, like the, the sort of um, repercussions of social media giants controlling large elements of our lives and getting involved in the political process and all the rest of it. Like he thinks really deeply about those kind of things. It also might just be because he's my age and probably sees the world kind of through, through similar eyes. Um, I'm going to also, at the risk of sounding sycophantic, I'm going to say uh, my boss, George Parker, who is a, a sort of legend of the, the political journalism. So he's, he's the political editor of the FT, I'm his deputy, and he has been covering politics on and off since Thatcher's era. Um, and the downfall of Thatcher. And what's what's brilliant about George is that he is the master of detail. And, you know, he understands things like what are the actual complicated physical consequences of Brexit on financial services or on border controls and customs. Um, but he also can, he can write with a sort of lightness of touch and a sort of wit. Um, it's a really difficult balance to do with political journalism because you're, you're trying to be accurate and you're trying to be detailed and, and factual and explain everything, but you don't want to just bore people to death as well. So you need that kind of, that light touch. And he can do profiles of politicians and he can do analyses uh, off the top of his head. And, you know, norm normally the FT rotates journalists every few years from the same post. So you might do something for three or four years and then they move you on. And George has been pollard of the FT since 2008, and uh, and there's a reason for that, which is which he, which he is brilliant. Um, the other person, again, I'm going to big up the FT. Sorry, but did you guys see the investigation to Wirecard by someone called Dan McCrum? I did not see this. No, I can't say I did. Okay, I urge you and I yeah. urge your listeners to just Google. If you read one thing in the FT, like literally for the rest of your lives, but this guy, he's a really kind of self-effacing journalist who was a banker for a few years which which i which is relevant i'll go back to explain that later and he started writing a few years ago about a german company called wirecard and it sort of facilitated cash transfers for, for trans transactions it's kind of sort of boring sounding business but it grew very very fast and it became a kind of darling of the german stock market it was one of the most valuable companies in germany and dan started writing years ago that, that there were sort of question marks over whether some, some of the companies reported sales and, and transactions were actually genuine. And then, you know, just over the years, story here, story there, which I have to confess I never read, but obviously the company noticed that the German financial regulators started to notice. And it just turned out this company was more and more dodgy. Uh, Dan ends up at one point this is brilliant. He, he wrote this 3,000 word story last year about, about the entire events of this Wirecard story, where he ends up with them literally hiring more than 20 kind of private detectives, like former spooks, you know, Israeli Secret Service type people, um, literally to sort of pursue him and basically try and bring him down. And they complain to the German regulators that the FT is this, this corrupt journalist is trying to basically write bad stories in order to short the share price of this company and make a fortune. And, you know, the editor of the FT at the time got a law firm to literally go through Dan's computer and sort of investigate just to make sure that he was clean. You know, it was incredib incredibly heavy pressure that he was un under. And at one point, he has a meeting with one of the kingpins from this, this company and they go to this Mayfair restaurant and there are three FT journalists at the neighbouring table literally wired up recording the whole thing with video from next to it um, because an intermediary had kind of hinted that for a large payment would Dan accept a large payment if he stopped his investigation I mean it's incredible incredible stuff um, and I think for the final six months of this he was literally writing his investigation with a huge amount of data that someone had given him in a room with a computer that was off the mainframe not plugged into the grid no internet just so that these bastards couldn't hack him. And uh, yeah, and he, he emerged triumphant a few months ago when uh, the FT did a story that finally nailed the fact that this was a fraudulent company. It's basically, I don't know if you're too young to remember Enron, but Enron was the great business fraud of, of uh, 20 years ago. And it's the whole thing all over again. 
share prices collapsed, everyone's lost their money, uh, and, and he's the most triumphant. So he, he swept the board with, I think, Journalist of the Year at the Press Awards back in about a month ago. And he's such a modest, sorry to sort of wang on it for ages, I'm not letting you guys talk, but sorry. he's such an incredible journalist yeah. and modest. And because of his financial experience, he could go through all these transactions and you know, I have to admit, I've done financial journalism before, but I, I, I tried to retrace his steps through some of this and the confidence he had in his own abilities to keep doing that when they told him it was wrong and then just still write the story. Amazing. Yeah, that is, that's an amazing story. So, Jim, in your current role as chief political correspondent of the FT, it seems to be like, it's obviously a massive role. What does it entail on a day-to-day basis? So... Um... I mean, the job is the job has changed enormously over the years. Mm. So I have to so so basically, I, I came to the lobby soon after George, the political editor. So I've been there for eleven and a half years or something. And so I wrote about you know the fall of the last Labour government, the rise of the coalition. Um, we did the Scottish referendum. We covered the European referendum and the, all the fallout from that. Um, and in, in the middle of it, you have just a whole load of sort of, th- those are the kind of big stories, right? And then the, the, the May election where everything went wrong, the um, election last year, those are the big stories. But then day to day, you still have just a phenomenal number of stories that are purely political, whether it's kind of local elections and things like that, or stories where, um, you know, I do, I do an awful lot of stuff, which is, which is very FT, where it's kind of where the business world meets politics. Mm, yeah. <laughs> So things like a year ago, we got the scoop that HS2 was 30 billion quid over budget, which, you know, in, a, in any other normal times would have been an absolutely massive story. I, I think it was a little bit overshadowed by, by the Brexit stuff. Or, you know, I write about business stuff, energy stuff. I write an awful lot about Labour Party. Mm. So the, the tradition is that the political editor tends to write about the, the number 10 in the Treasury, particularly... And then the number two, which is me, writes about the opposition party. So I wrote the whole Ed Miliband era, the rise of Corbyn, the fall of Corbyn, Keir Starmer era as well. And in, in terms of your question of sort of what happens every day, you, you've got to sort of balance. Um, I mean, the challenge, the challenge is mixing um, just the kind of day-to-day stories which are always breaking around your ears and then taking the time out to actually do um innovative original reporting yeah yeah um so we so um, i mean i uh sorry to boast um but like 14 months ago um a team of us won i picked up political journalist of the year from the uk press awards and that was from a series where we'd actually step back and we looked in real detail about what a corbyn government would do and what it would mean and like who the key people were in the Corbyn empire as it was at the time and all the rest of it. Um, and I kind of, I thought that was never going to win any awards because it felt inevitable by that point that, that Labour was going to lose the 2019 election. But, you know, often the journalism you get remembered for is that kind of thing. Or like I say, the Wirecard Dan McCrum investigation. Mm. And no one particularly remembers the fact that you, Jim Pickard, um, you know, like this week, I, I got a tip off that the government was bringing in PCR tests for everyone coming into the country from abroad. You know, I got the tip at nine o'clock at night. We got a few paragraphs out, oh, a tiny bit of credit. You know, no one's going to remember that. That's, that's not going to be on my gravestone. But you still need to do that. It's a really important thing to be, you know, where are they on the vaccine program? Where are they on test and trace? Where are they on? Um, and, and, you know, COVID has obviously dominated everything for the last year in the same way that Brexit dominated everything for the previous few years. You mentioned there how you cover a lot of the Labour Party and uh, I think you won, well, your department picked up uh, Press Gazette Award for Political Journalism in 2019 about a whole series of um, articles about Corbyn and sort of his revolution. Um, that was quite an, in- I sort of had a gaze through the uh, sort of set of articles. It was quite an in-depth analytical look at his economic approach is that sort of um 
that type of journalism, how you set yourselves apart from the rest of uh, the broadsheets? Yeah, what, what I would say to anyone trying to make their mark is, is, is exactly that, that you, if it's prizes you want to pick up, um, if it's kind of big agenda setting stories, then quite often that does require just going away into a dark room and thinking about, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, is it worth us assembling a team, going away, doing a three-week investigation to, I don't know, PPE procurement by the government last year or whatever it is. Um, it's just quite hard with political journalism finding the time to do that because you're always being dragged into other stories. I mean, literally 20 minutes before I came to talk to you guys, they announced that the Moderna, which is a pharmaceutical company, has had the go-ahead for the third vaccine that the UK will have. So, you know, if you would, um, and I was writing some other story this morning, I mean, if you were trying to do some sort of deep dive, it, it's possible, I mean, it's possible to go off diary and then life becomes a bit easier. So 10 years ago, we did an investigation into Tony Blair and his business empire that he'd accumulated after leaving number 10. And for that, we literally went off diary for a month, meaning you don't do anything else apart from that. And then, and then it becomes a little bit easier to do. But there'll always be that tension. Yeah, definitely. So well, is that one of your... It's been a pretty chaotic time since you've become <laughs> chief political correspondent. What are your sort of standout memories from that time in terms of sort of surreal moments? There must be quite a few. There's a few weird ones, yeah. I remember, I remember being on a plane with Gordon Brown on his way back from New York um, as the financial crash was sort of happening all around our ears. And so what happens is the, the PM will do a foreign trip um, and journalists, lobby journalists can go along on that in return for paying a certain amount of money, which sort of helps subsidise the PM's trip. Um, so I guess it's good for taxpayers. It gives us a bit of access. And the normal things, the Prime Minister comes down the plane halfway through the flight and you get a bit of an opportunity to chat to them. And some of them are kind of better at chat than others. You, as you can imagine, David Cameron was better at chat than um, uh, Theresa May, obviously. And, <laughs> and so I remember, I remember saying to Gordon Brown, you know, you keep talking about um, American loans, which went bad. You know, what about UK banks doing dodgy loans? Because before politics, I was covering property. And like, it was an absolute open secret in the property industry that um, British banks were lending very stupidly. And he just he just got very very cross and he started shouting at me. You know, this is meant to be a just a friendly gathering. Why are you why are you attacking me with these questions? <laughs> um, which I found quite slightly weird. So I, I remember being on a, a trip to. I'm I'm deliberately picking out glamorous things. By the way, um, You've, it's got to be like, done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. The sound bites. The sound bites. I, I could equally talk about being sat in Westminster Hall listening to backbench MPs talk about planning system um and it, it would it would be an equally realistic um kind of assessment of what I, what I do for a living but no I, I I was in Africa for this trip that David Cameron did and it was a really exciting agenda it was going to be um South Africa and then Nigeria and then I think from memory it was going to be it was going to be some places like Sudan and Somalia you know the kind of places you wouldn't get to go um, off your own bat so I was quite excited about it and we got as far as Nigeria um, which is I kind of remember because I remember being in a bar late at night with Steve Hilton who was the sort of he was the sort of weirdo advisor and number 10 at the time who padded around in bare feet I don't know if you remember him then he, he reinvented himself recently as a as pro-Trump shock jock in America um, but what was fascinating was that what was happening back here at the time was that the phone hacking scandal was erupting and it was, it was the most kind of damaging scandal under Cameron's watch because it, it was all about the phone hacking itself, of course, and then how implicated it was Rebecca Brooks. And then questions were raised about how close was Rebecca Brooks to David Cameron. And it was just fascinating being on this trip, just watching him having to kind of glad hand these African leaders and talk about mosquito nets and stuff. And you, you could see his whole brain was just wrapped up with this question of, how am I going to get out of this pickle at home? What am I going to have to do? And, and in the end, he cut, he cut the whole trip short 
just the two days. Um, so I remember that. And I remember um, I, didn't, I didn't get to do an awful lot of, of the Scottish referendum on the ground. Um, and to make up for that, when the 2015 election came around, um, I made sure that I was in Glasgow for 10 days because um, I don't know if you remember the sequencing of events, but basically the nationalists lost the referendum by 55 to 45, whatever it was. And then the Scottish public just hammered the mainstream parties in favour of the SNP. And you could see this tidal wave coming a mile off. And I spent all this time in Glasgow, you know, proper on the ground, just sort of going to Possible Park, um, the big tower blocks, and just, just going around different constituencies in Glasgow talking to people. And you could, you could just put your ear to the ground and you could just feel people were fed up with Labour Party and they were going to bring in the SNP. And you know, this, this was a political change where the party went from 41 Scottish MPs down to one overnight and it was it just it just it was just very pleasurable to be kind of off off the grid doing my own thing writing about this change which which you, you could smell it in the air it was it was it was just about so i enjoyed that so more about the ft then it's probably seen as the only real national specialist paper left do you enjoy that niche yeah i mean i um the, the, the fun thing about writing about politics for the FT is that you get to write the pure politics stuff. So like, if I, if I write about a general election result, I, I don't say, you know, the Conservatives have won, you know, which is good news for the construction, uh, real estate and banking industry. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not totally obsessed with business. We, we would just write a straight political analysis piece. Um, we did a lot of Whitehall stuff. Um, you might have noticed when the Cabinet Secretary was novelled a few months ago, that was an FT scoop. We had the scoop about the Chief Legal Officer resigning in protest against the Internal Markets Bill because it was going to break international law. Now, these, these are things that are not particularly businessy. They're, they're just serious things. Um, but I do get to write a bit of business stuff as well. Um, I think... Uh, let that answer your question. And I get, I get to write, I get to write stuff which is quite fun as well. I mean, in in the first COVID lockdown, I was writing about you know where I go jogging, and you know I got to review a picnic hamper, um, got to review a Jeremy Corbyn book. Um, you know, it's, it's a good mix of stuff. And I've you know I've been off the I've been off the political gigs at other papers and um, and turned them down, just just because the FT is is a very good employer and has really good journalistic standards. I mean, just just to tell you a story, I, I I didn't tell you this bit of the of my youth, which was so I did I did the postgrad course mm-hmm. at the university, and I worked at the local paper for a couple of years, um, and then the FT hired me to be their West Country correspondent based out of Bristol. So this is this is literally twenty years ago, and I remember the first time an FT news editor commissioned me to do a bit of journalism. I can't remember what the story was, but I remember. They sort of they do what news editors do, which they say, you know, this is happening, bloody blah, blah, this and that, and on the other hand, this, and can you write it like this? And I went away, and I talked to various people, and I came back and I said to the news editor, "Yeah, I've, I've looked into the story you want me to do, but you know, the truth appears to be more like X, Y, Z." And the news editor said, "Well, yeah, we'll write that in." And it was just really refreshing to, to work for an organisation which is literally, we don't have an agenda. Can you just write what's happening? Um, and look, our, our enemies w- would say that we probably do have an agenda, um, but as as a as an objective news reporter, it doesn't feel like that. Is it is it the only real broadsheet left then, with the Times and sort of and the Guardian a bit and the Telegraph sort of moving towards more sort of lighter content? Uh, no, I th- I think that's unfair. Actually, I think. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to big up the FT. I'm going to point out that we won News Provider of the Year at the Press Awards three years, the last three years in a row. But we have really, really tough competition from those organisations you mentioned. You know, the, we live in fear of the times. They they bring in story after story, scoop after scoop. Um, their news teams don't write 
generally stuff with a with a political edge. Um, you could you could say that the Telegraph news agenda is is a little bit more pro Brexity than than others, I suppose. But again, you know, we get we get scooped by the Telegraph, and it get and it hurts when you get scooped, and they do a good job. And the, the Guardian the Guardian does its own thing in a good way as well. I think. Um, you know, we get scooped by the sun, we get scooped by the mail. Um, the the trick is to just try and make sure that you are that they're feeling the pain as well from from you. But the, yeah. the truth the truth is, if there, if there are probably 150 political journalists, and we have a team of four, um, we can produce what we think is brilliant content, but we we can't be first on every single story, every single day. Having the payroll does enable you to produce higher quality content but it also stops a lot of the general public from accessing this content. Do you think there's a bit of a socio-economic dilemma with that? I think, I mean, there, there are projects which the FT has done, such as making the FT available for school children and for students in certain circumstances. You know, I think they are aware, mm. and it's not completely altruistic, because if you can get a smart students to read FT.com, free or heavily subsidized when they're 18 or 21 then they might stick around and come back to you later yeah um, but i you know i think those organizations which have tried giving away content for free have got themselves loads of eyeballs and they've got themselves very large readerships but it's very very hard to make a living um that way and the the thing the thing for you to understand is the central problem is that um, advertise, print advertising mm. is an awful lot more expensive than web advertising. Web advertising, you don't you don't get anything like as much um, money for. I mean, I remember going through Daily Mail's uh, financial accounts for some reason, and it was just staggering how much a single advert would cost in the paper compared to the web. So that as as the print circulations for everybody diminish. That that is the crucial kind of um, financial equation that everyone's facing, and therefore it's not surprising to me that that there are other people, such as the Telegraph, moving into subscription models because they've realised um, how hard it is to, to make a living any other way. And you know, the Guardian does it in a much more kind of, you know, we're all friends and we're going to donate yeah. voluntarily. And, and mm. as far as I can see, that seems to be going reasonably well. But um, the, the the truth is that um our, our circulation online has been going up and up past a million paying subscribers it's gone up massively during the covid crisis because in these uncertain times pe people are prepared to pay money for for reliable information um uh lionel barber was obviously a great editor of the financial times for a very long time how much of an impact and he recently left how much of an impact did he have on your career I wouldn't say that he was a kind of personal mentor to me or anything. I think, um, I mean, what, what I would say is that he set standards incredibly high and he saw the digital future long before a lot of other people. And that combination of insisting on really high standards and sort of seeing a business model that would work in, in this new future I mean that—that's the reason why he stayed as editor as long as he he did, which was which was a very long time. I mean, when I started at the FT twenty years ago, that this does sound quite weird to you, but the sort of the, the sort of uh, the web journalists were almost seen as a kind of slightly lower class mm. of journalists to the newspaper journalists. It was it was almost like we'll have the we'll have the experienced clever newspaper journalist spend all day writing something for the paper which we'll charge a fair amount of money for and then the web person who, who might be straight out of university and less experienced would would be left doing a totally different web story and it, it took a fair few years before you know they realized the future is reading online and and, and everything merged into, into a single lean operation mm. Um, he received a reported 1.9 million payout and some of the staff members have been quoted as saying it was a bit of a slap in the face at a time when redundancies are being made. How did you feel about it? You're a good journalist. I'm not answering that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's oh, a really good though. It's a great 
Um, in one of our podcasts last series, you spoke to Jim Waterson, who was a member of the lobby with uh, BuzzFeed. And he said there's a bit of a tendency for members of the lobby to be sort of the classic white male Oxbridge graduates. And that might mean that they struggle to report on issues relating to race, gender and low income families, as well as some people who've had more experience in those with those things. Do you think that is a problem with the lobby? Um I mean, in, in my team of four people at the moment, the only one of us who went to Oxbridge is a 25-year-old black woman. So hopefully that rebuts your point slightly. But yeah. do, do I think overall the lobby has too many white people who are middle-aged and white, like myself, and middle class? Um, that's undoubtedly true, yeah. And I think um, you know, att- attempts are made to try, to try and, and broaden that. I think one one of the um the way the way a female colleague put it to me once was that um you know some political teams there's kind of a tendency that if if it's a sort of gender story or a you know social care story or something you might editors might put a female reporter towards that and they might put a a male reporter towards a sort of big financial or military story or something like whether they're doing this deliberately or not there might yeah. be sort of inherent subconscious bias. yeah i mean the, the only thing i would say to you is that the um my old colleague and friend beth rigby is the political editor of sky and is a woman laura Kingsburg, political editor of the beeb is a woman heather at the guardian is a woman um is is that enough uh, and they are all white so it's not it's probably not enough but um yeah i'm, I'm not going to try and defend that do you think there's any way that you could improve it, really, or not? Well, well, do you? Do you no, no. It should. It, it needs improving. But how do you see any way of going about it? Um, well, I mean, hiring twenty-five-year-old black Oxbridge graduates is one way, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think I've alluded to the fact that we recently did that. Mm. Uh, is there a point to be made that somewhat it's? Um, you're fighting fire with fire that you are attempting to get you know work with MPs and politicians that are of a background quite an elite background and it's forced the lobby to have to match up with similar kind of people which has created that quite widespread or not widespread the large number of males white males no I I don't, I don't think it is, I don't think there's any sort of conscious sense of we need posh white males if we're going to be talking to posh white male MPs. I think, yeah, does it help if you're a political journalist to be really confident and to be able to go up to people you've never met before who are quite powerful and try and get to know them? I mean, that is obviously an advantage. And you will have noticed in your lives that people who've been to private school, for example, might have more swaggering confidence than someone who's from a, a sort of low-income background full of hardship and challenges. Not necessarily, but it might happen. I mean, one, one reason I find this, you know, slightly, I feel like I'm walking on thin ice slightly talking about this, is, is that, you're almost inviting me to say everyone should go out and hire people who aren't white and men, but you yeah. both know that you both know that positive discrimination. Yeah, is it's just as bad. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's controversial because it's, yeah. as soon as you start saying or hinting that you've hired someone because of uh, their racial or gender characteristics, mm. you're implying that they've been given the job for those reasons, and and that isn't a great look either, is it? No, that, that's a, that's hundred percent true. Um, there's a lot of chat on Twitter about a lobby WhatsApp group. D- does it really exist? There is a lobby WhatsApp group, yeah. <laughs> and I'd love to know, is it all really serious or is there, is there ever any banter flying about with sort of people putting clips from the thick of it in and stuff like that? Or is it... <laughs> you'd, be, you'd, be surpri- you'd, be surprised how, you'd be surprised how boring it is, actually. <laughs> Do you want me to read out the latest stuff from it? Hang on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what you've got to bear in mind is that there's there's three, I think there's 250 people on this. And 
the way it works at the moment is because we, we normally have, we have a lobby meeting at um, 11 in the morning and then we have another one in the afternoon normally. And it's in a building, you get to ask the spokesman questions face to face. The way it's working at the moment, because it's all uh, online, the chairman of the lobby is having to gather questions and ask the prime minister spokesman questions from hundreds of people. So the last thing he wants is is funny um, banter coming into what's <laughs> that group. So here, here is, I think this is today's one. On the election, Wales is drawing up legislation to allow an election delay. When will we hear the preferred candidate announcement on the BBC? What's today's vaccination figure? When we hear about the plans for televised press briefings, can you ask my supplementary about the lack of medical evidence back in the 12 week gap? La, 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 la. Uh, here's the vaccine list. There's not much banter, I'm afraid. <laughs> Disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, there, there are some days where I'm getting hundreds of these messages, and they are, I mean, at the moment, they are quite heavy. Um, do you sometimes, there has been a bit of a thing recently with um, new thing, new sort of policies or new changes to the sort of COVID procedures we're having at the moment being leaked to so-called favourable newspapers in terms of like the Telegraph. How do, does that sort of, does that hurt a bit when you, when that happens? I don't think the Telegraph, have the Telegraph had much? I think, I think the, the, Times, the Times had a couple of good stories. Um, so I have a kind of complicated response to this one, which is, you know, when when there was one particularly egregious example of this where they suddenly moved into the November lockdown, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's the one I was thinking I was trying to, yeah. It all, yeah, it, it, it all broke on a Friday night and I'd had a few drinks and I was watching a Disney film with my family and you sort of have a little look at Twitter at half ten at night and then suddenly you're having to message a load of people and write a story. Um, it's very, very annoying. It's human nature to think, why do these bastards um, give this preferable treatment to um, their sort of favoured pet journalists? I, th I think the truth is actually... Um, they might have just beat me to a story by being better on that particular story on that particular day. And it doesn't necessarily mean that Don Cummings or Lee Kane actively just called someone and said, here's a story and it, it falls into their lap. Mm -hmm. I think what is much more likely is, you know, that there are so many sources in politics who could be civil servants, who could be political advisors, who could be MPs, who could be ministers. They could be sort of, you know, consultants working in Whitehall and other stuff who pick things up and there are so many ways that information leaks out because as soon as you widen the circle of confidential information from let's say the Prime Minister and Gove decides to do something then they have a committee meeting which has 10 people and then there are officials there taking notes and then they all talk to their teams yeah it, it's not necessarily a sort of patsy journalism if this stuff if this stuff leaks out i think to be f a very convoluted way of, of trying to be fair to my rivals do you think the lobby will change much uh, now we're seeing allegra stratton coming as the number 10's press secretary so they called off the i don't know if you saw this but they were mm -hmm. promising to have televised yeah they called it off yesterday or the day before didn't they briefings yeah they they called it off i think the logistics just became too crazy um, like I was talking about with the, with the fact that we're having to channel our questions through mm -hmm. one person. I think if you tried to do a Zoom lobby with 50 people, it would be horrendous. You think how bad the daily ones are with just six questions? Yeah. And not a normal lobby, you might hit them with like 80, 90 questions. It, it would be insane. And I think it, it's very interesting because Allegra used to sit 10 yards away from me because she was in The Guardian as a political journalist and the, the FT room in the House of Commons is separated by a, a very small tunnel to the Guardian. So you can sort of, I could hear Allegra on the phone all day when she was a, a Guardian hack and none of us knew that she was uh, a Conservative then. She kept that under, under wraps. She's got a really challenging job if they do go ahead with these televised briefings because she will become one of the most recognised faces in the country. She will often not have a credible answer to legitimate questions which were asked 
And what normally happens with lobby is that you have some poor official just dead batting everything. This is sort of Jeffrey boycott, just persistently, you know, giving what sounds like an answer, but it's not really an answer. Mm. Again, and again, and again, until you want to kill him almost. <laughs> if he tries to do that and the public are watching, they're not going to be very impressed. Mm. Um, so I don't really know why they decided to do it, to be honest. Yeah, it seems to be a bit of, um, I mean, fair play to her. for te- I don't know, obviously, but fair play for taking it on. It seems a bit of a mad job to want to do, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I think, I, think, I think they wanted to look like a load of snooty lobby journalists asking cynical questions of, you know, a single female individual standing up in front of them um, and that we might all look a bit jaundiced mm. and a bit mm. finicky. But I think, I think the converse is true, that they, they will look defensive and just unhelpful and, and constantly stonewalling. Let's move on to um, Twitter then, because it's it's becoming more and more essential for journalists. And it's the fact we managed to get you on there as a guest today. What what do you make of it as a type of media? Uh, love, love, hate. I mean, mm. I, I'll tell you what I hate about it. If I'm being... What, what I love about it is that it's enabled me to reach whatever it is, 150,000 people, and obviously more when your stuff gets shared. And there are people who are quite well known who follow me back. And just in terms of, you know, like you reached me through this, through Twitter, mm-hmm. but I, I often reach MPs by just DMing them. Um, and you just have that instant access. Or if it's like, if I'm writing about, I don't know, Brexit's impact on the horticultural society the odds are that i just quickly look on twitter and that person might be following me and you just follow them back and ask a question it's very useful for that it's very useful for um getting ft stories in front of people's noses who yeah they might think they they might not have even known that the ft did conventional political coverage uh or they might have presumed that our coverage was kind of right wing or biased and so sort of for people to be able to see that you're doing objective reporting, critical of the government, um, but fair. I mean, it's, that's all a very good thing. I think the thing that personally annoys me about Twitter is how easy it is just to get massive loads of retweets by knocking the government, which I'm probably guilty of. And when you try and be fair and say something that looks supportive of a conservative government, you get absolutely rinsed and I mean, you know, my skin is thick enough to take it, but it's quite interesting. So I I remember doing a tweet in the election campaign where I said, I think this is, this is when Jeremy Corbyn was going on about how they were going to national, the the Tories would privatise the NHS. And I sort of pointed out, you know, is it 11% of the NHS is currently provided by private providers, but most of that change happened under Tony Blair. Like, if, if the Tories wanted to privatise the NHS, you would have thought they would have done it in their last 50 years, out of the last 70 that they had been in power. And I got about 10,000 hostile comments. And I would say, in four years' time, I will be able to turn around and say, they still haven't privatised yeah. the NHS, so you're wrong. But it stings a little bit, because you just have these random people calling you a stooge and stuff. But, yeah. I, on, on balance, I think it, Twitter is quite a good thing. Your um your account is very entertaining. Um, this is happening with a lot of journalists at the moment. Is there a reason behind it in terms of trying to grow a following, or is it just personal amusement? Yeah, and I I kind of um, the the things if you if I if I was to do a tweet about you know I've learned something interesting about Sizewell B's application for a new power station, you know I, I might write that up for the FT. It's, it's not going to generate much interest on Twitter. Mm. So I, I do separate the two out somewhat in terms of you know, what, what I write for my newspaper slash website is, is an awful lot more serious than what I do on Twitter because you know I'm not on Twitter necessarily as an FT person. I'm, I'm there as Jim Pickard mm. being myself. And, and if I can get some um, clicks onto the website, then great. Um, I mean, it comes with a bit of danger, doesn't it? The, 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 I think I think there is a bit of thin ice there for people um, 
if they do step the boundaries and and it's a night if you work for the bbc then it's it's an absolute nightmare being on twitter because you will annoy people whatever you do because they they always expect the bbc to reflect their opinion so yeah (laughs) yeah left-wing people think the bbc is biased towards the right Mm. right wing people think the bbc is biased towards the left they really studiously comprehensively try to be neutral i watch them at it all the time and they still annoy people with their reporting so for them to try and do it on Twitter where, you know, can you be can you be neutral and objective in that many characters is quite hard, isn't it? Yeah. They, they have, um, they obviously, as you just said, and they've sort of recently brought in a new policy for their staff um, who used Twitter about being sort of unbiased. Um, do the FT have any sort of say in the, in the stuff you tweet or is it just completely free reign? So the only times that I have been um, politely cautioned mm. is where, you know, I'm not licensed to have like hard political opinions. I'm not a political commentator. I am a news reporter. So um, I might as well say this. There, there was one I did last spring where I categorically said Dominic Cummings ought to resign. And, you know, to be fair, I'm not, I, I shouldn't really be saying that because... Um, my job is to report news and on that particular thing there were two sides to it Um, he had a case as to why he shouldn't resign I don't personally agree with that Um, I actually deleted that tweet but um, tweets where I I am mocking Dominic Cummings uh, making fun of his weird escapade up to Bond Castle for some reason I think that seems to be um, that seems to be okay I think. I mean, I think. I think it helps that I generally don't support any political party. So hmm. ho- hopefully, people can tell from my feed that I'm not an advocate for any politician or any or any party. And I think if you are, that's where you're more likely to sl- slip into trouble. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. What's your take on politicians on social media then? Because we've seen. I mean, in the last forty-eight hours, a lot of reactive measures by both Twitter and Facebook towards Donald Trump. Um, because obviously his social media um, activity is, it's fair to say, quite dangerous. Um, what's your take on politicians and social media? Do you think it's disaster waiting to happen? I think an, an awful lot of MPs are just boring on Twitter. You look, you look at their feeds and it's literally like they're opening a village hall and they, they can't find anything interesting to say about opening a village hall. I think there are a few people who have augmented their public reputation by being on, on social media. So Ed Miliband is very witty. He is very selective. I don't know how often he tweets, but he makes sure he makes sure that when he does it, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Mm. And again, like I was saying, you, you're sort of aware that, that that is just an iceberg of Ed Miliband. He's doing a whole load of other serious stuff elsewhere. He just decides to, to make the occasional joke or intervention on Twitter. And I think that's, that is quite a good thing. Um, I think you know, my, my take on social media generally is that it has absolutely transformed the way politics has changed in recent years. And Cor- Jeremy Corbyn was a creature of social media. That, that frenzied support for Corbyn totally bubbled up through people talking to each other on social media and saying we don't like the look of people like Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper who are just saying the same old stuff. Corbyn was saying things that chimed with what they believed, like the Iraq war was a disaster, you know, there shouldn't be food banks in 21st century UK. Um, and, and social media sort of, it was like a sort of wave that just came around. It's, it sort of went around the, the conventional boundaries and barriers of, of politics and Trump Trump is the same um, but the, pro- the problem with all this social media is that the kind of fact checking and attempts to be objective that the mainstream media we've always had to do and he you know to defend some of my more biased news organization colleagues even where you know where they're coming from politically they will make they, they will make the effort to you know if a right-wing newspaper is doing a, a takedown story that's critical of a Labour MP, they will still give that Labour MP the right of reply and they will still write his explanations theirs. 
maybe, maybe not as profusely as that MP would like, but you know, we're in a world of social media where people are writing any old stuff, fan fantasy stuff, no grounds in reality whatsoever. And I think you can draw a direct line between social media and those people marching on Capitol Hill and four people dying two days ago. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's a very um, dangerous and dangerous way to get across to his supporters that has led to obviously these terrible events. I mean, touching on that as well. I mean, we saw a lot, even uh, media being targeted on Capitol Hill. Um, the media is essentially seen as almost like an enemy of the people now in the US by, well, at least half of the uh, population or half the electoral role. Do you think it's far-fetched to see something similar happening, happening here or is it already happening to an extent? I mean, look, my experience of talking to people in recent years has been that you say, I'm a journalist from the FT, they chat to you and then off you go. Um, the only... It's, it's very seldom that you feel hostility. Like there was, there was the big rally on the night of Brexit. Do you remember on January, end of January last yeah. year? And I went to that rally in Westminster, in Parliament Square. And there were loads of Tommy Robinson supporters in one corner of the crowd who had basically gone there for a bit of a ruck and to get hammered. And, you know, journalists who went near them, they were quite abusive. But I actually, I actually have, uh, I have, have a feeling that um, the British electorate is um, actually a lot more sensible, if that's the right word, or more moderate, a lot more moderate yeah. than, than America. Uh, they're also not armed. <laughs> um, but but to, give, to give you a flavour of what I mean, I, I sit through quite a few um, focus groups done by other people. And, and I do these focus groups with um, Britain Thinks, which is a pollen company. And I've been in one's probably three times which had been kind of Brexit voting right wing, older voters. And they're asked what, which leaders they admire. And they all think that Donald Trump is a dishonest, weird, not a presidential guy. They all love Barack Obama. And I, I don't, I think Brexit did raise the temperature of um, how we all converse politically here. Um, the rise of Corbyn made things a bit, made people a bit hot under the collar. You know, there was, of course, that horrendous tragedy with, with Joe Cox being murdered. But I, I think things in America are a whole lot more alarming. I, I think they're just off the scale, different in the intensity of, of how polarised that society is. I, I, might, I might be a naive optimist, but I, I think um, yeah, Brexit's in the rearview mirror. I think, I think it's really not the same here. Do you think that's fair? I'm, I'm kind of... I'm not used to being interviewed, so I'm just thinking. I'm speaking without thinking, or vice versa. No, I, th I think that's. Um, I mean, that's pretty pretty bang on there, to be honest. I can't see. Um, I can't see it happening so much over here. So, Jim, just to finish, I'm going to ask you for your election prediction for the next election. Who who will be in power? So, I do rate Keir Starmer in many ways. I, th I think he's a man of principle. I think he's proved himself more political and tough than people thought. I mean, whether you approve or not of what he's, he's done in terms of tackling Jeremy Corbyn and Corbyn's sacking load of Corbynistas, you know, he's tougher than people think. But I, I think the challenges in facing Labour is just so massive. Like when you think they used to have 40 MPs in Scotland and now they're down to one again, they've got to win back the red wall, but they've also got to win a load of swing seats in the south of England as well. I think, I think he can probably get Labour back to the sort of levels it was at at the start of the last decade, but then you still need a you still need a final push, and I I just think the, the sort of charisma contest between him and Boris Johnson for all of the government's failures over the coronavirus pandemic for all the kind of question marks over Boris Johnson's own leadership qualities and, and all the rest of it, when you, when you look at the challenges facing Labour, you, you wouldn't really put money on, on Keir becoming Prime Minister in, in four years' time. But, you know, I didn't predict Brexit. I didn't predict that Scotland would become as close as it did. I didn't predict that Jeremy Corbyn 
Um, we'd make 30 gains in 2017. I mean, I, I predicted more or less what would happen in 19, but, um, you know, my, my defense is that we can analyze what's happening. You know, my job is actually not telling the future, but thank, thank God. <laughs> it, if it was, if it was, was like, out of my <laughs> I think the unpredictability of all is probably what makes it so entertaining. Exactly. Exactly. Very much so. Thank you very much for coming on, Jim. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good luck. That's everything from this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Being students, we do have some difficult exams in the coming weeks, but don't worry, we'll be back afterwards with some more episodes. To keep up to date, give us a follow on Twitter at VFTB underscore pod. Thanks for listening. See you soon. The View from the Byline podcast. Discussing the media landscape. With the people who shape it.